Welcome to the Toxic Google Podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Lauren, bringing you this episode. Toxic Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. This episode is with Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, a philosopher, award-winning author of over 30 books, and respected international faith leader. He was the recipient of the 2016 Templeton Prize and served as Chief Rabbi of the UK and Commonwealth from 1991 to 2013. In this conversation, he discusses his latest book, Morality, which traces today's crisis to our loss of a strong shared moral code and our elevation of self-interest over the common good, and challenges us to develop a more inspiring global vision. Moderated by Googler Tim Chatwin, here is Jonathan Sachs, Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times. Hi there, my name's Tim Chatwin. Thank you all for joining today. It gives me great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to talk to Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who uh, has written a a fascinating book, which we'll be talking about a lot, uh, Morality. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs served as the chief rabbi uh, in the United Kingdom of the and the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth from 1991 until 2013, uh, and has held a number of professorships at universities in Britain and the United States and Israel, and is the author of over 30 books, uh, which uh, is is incredibly prolific, but also a huge contribution to uh, the intellectual landscape uh, across the world. So uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Rabbi Sachs. Tim, great to be with you. Hi there, Rabbi Sachs, great to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, okay, you know. Um, you know, early on during lockdown, my rather mischievous brother in Jerusalem spoke to me on the phone and said, Jonathan, you're the only one who's not going to be bothered by this because you've been practicing self-imposed isolation since you were born. (laughs) (laughs) So I've kind of been quite happy with it, but really thrilled at the um, possibility of communication locally and globally um, because I, I think the electronic media, this was and is their finest hour. Yeah, no, I I think that's right, and I think there's a, there's a lot that we could cover there. Um, and so, and and reading the book uh, and sort of many of your articles and and interviews that you've done, um, it makes it feel like the the book was sort of planned for the pandemic in that sense. It's re- it's very timely. But I wondered if you could uh, first kind of help me understand what led you to writing this book. What was the process? I felt things were coming apart. Uh, I sensed that in Britain, I sensed it in America because I was doing a fair amount of teaching for five years in America. I sensed it in the in the fact that um, we no longer seemed to be comfortable in talking across differences. Now, talking across differences, the very essence of an intellectual civilization. You can't actually move forward without being able to listen to the people who disagree with you and hope that they listen respectfully to you. So um, that was 
deeply, deeply worrying. But I could also see lots of other stuff, post-truth, fake news, identity politics, unequal economics, loneliness, isolation, teenage depression, you name it. We went right through the list in the book. And the question I asked, and it took me several years to try and struggle my way through, is are these a lot of discrete phenomena or are they all symptoms of one thing, like climate change? Climate change can translate itself into extreme heat in one place, extreme cold in another, storms in another, drought in another. And yet they're all part of the same thing, the destruction of, as it were, uh, the Earth's ecology. And I came to the conclusion in the end that all of these things, though they have different logics to them, but they were all symptoms of one great thing, which I called cultural climate change, which is the loss of the idea that we need a common moral core to society. Mm. I don't mean that society should tell us how we should run our sex lives or anything like that, but I mean the basic sense that we are collectively responsible for the common good. And more and more and more and more, life was being reduced in Britain and America to two kinds of competition, the market, the competition for wealth, and the state, the competition for power. And in competitive situations, it's all about me, my interest, uh, getting there first, um, trying to make sure that I get my share and that you don't take it from me. Now, Competition is fine, but it's only fine if it's counterbalanced by an arena of cooperation. And what I was seeing was the progressive wearing away of that arena. And the end result was society getting more and more conflictual. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I guess in, in – so you've talked about that idea of cultural climate change. Um does the parallel exist then? We're, we're struggling to deal with culture, with climate change and to get sort of agreement on global progress. Is the same true here, that it will be hard to make progress against this cultural climate change? No, I don't think so, actually. You know, the second that you decide to act in an altruistic way, you uh, help a neighbour who may not be able to get out and do they're shopping for them, or you phone up the isolated and the alone, or you uh, volunteer the way three-quarters of a million people in Britain volunteered in the space of two days, help with the NHS. Every time you do good in that sense, um, you discover what's terribly important, that just as coronavirus pandemic, bad things are contagious. So good things are contagious. And every single act that we do um, helps to make a little bit of contagion of good, of altruism, of human care. Yeah, okay. Because that you've 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 certainly said that it's your job to cheer people up. Um, I've heard you say in, in different interviews. Um but if you could you could read, if you didn't make it to the end of your book, you could feel quite quite concerned about the loss of a moral foundation um so it's totally totally miserable book for th three quarters of the way through <laughs> i mean it's a brilliant analysis of, of these, 
it's it's a brilliant analysis of the trends that you've spotted but it's it's uh i need to explain something to you tim otherwise you won't understand it uh there was a very bright english don at cambridge called george steiner and george steiner once made a really fascinating distinction between a prediction and a prophecy mm. he said if a prediction comes true it has succeeded if a prophecy comes true, it has failed. In other words, Jeremiah, Jonah, you know, Jonah gets up and says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, of course, everyone takes him seriously. They all repent, and Nineveh is spared. <laughs> right. So a, a prediction, a prediction is, is telling you what's going to happen. A prophecy is telling you what's going to happen unless... And you only do a prophecy because you are going to end with hope. So really, when right. you do a kind of prophetic book, you warn people of the dangers that lie ahead, and then about a quarter of the way uh, into the end, um, you say, but actually we can stop this happening if we do X, Y, and Z. So it's a kind of prophetic book, and it's not a kind of genre that is terribly normal these days. So I can understand people getting depressed, but actually um, uh, every prophet of doom uh, in ancient Israel was also a prophet of hope. And um, so I, I hope there's, the book ends with hope. I hope so. Yes, and there is there is optimism sort of laid through it as well. It's just that the, yeah. the, the analysis is... Yeah. Is is tough, but and, and true. And what one of the constructs that you talk about in the book is this idea of the I we construct. So perhaps for people who haven't read the book, could you explain what that is? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that Darwin understood, one of the things that all evolutionary psychologists understand, is that <clears throat> for any life of any sophistication, even pre-human life. You need two things. You need competition and you need cooperation. Individuals have to look after themselves, otherwise they don't survive. But individuals only survive, social animals only survive if they're members of groups. Hmm. And when they are members of groups, um, they have to be altruistic. They have to put the interests of the group above their own private interests. And... Um, that is the we consciousness, uh, which is written into the human brain. It is even written into the brain, believe it or not, of fruit bats, because fruit bats can't be sure always of finding food. So if a fruit bat finds food, he brings it back and shares it with the other bats hmm. uh, because he hopes and expects that they're going to share their find with him when when the time comes. So altruism is 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 written into all social animals. And therefore we think of we think of the we, of the group as a whole. Um, and um, and um, I'm afraid our contemporary culture, and this is what, what's cultural climate change, does tend to discourage us from thinking about the we. Yes. I, uh, yeah, and I think that the, the the experience of lockdown has provided a, a sort of extreme version of I. I think for many people, where you've been, you've 
we're in our modern lives, we're so busy, we're always filled, we're listening to the next podcast, we're rushing to the next meeting. And actually, I've, I've personally found that I've been slowed down and left with my own thoughts more often. And in some way, it's made me realize that there is too much I. And actually, I crave more of that we, but it's not there in modern society quite often. Um, I don't know, would you, would you agree with that, that idea that perhaps people have had it sort of amplified? 100%. I mean... You know, I didn't think that I would get depressed during lockdown, but I did, and I have. And most people I know have. Hmm. Uh, because we are starved of that incredibly important thing, face-to-face -face contact. It, it's, it's part of the very essence of who and what we are. Um, and we've been starved of it, and therefore we feel very, very low. Um, I think John McCain the late John McCain from, from the States, who was, what, a prisoner of the Vietnamese, I think, for about five years. Yes. Yeah. And tortured, tortured, tortured. Uh, but he said that the torture was not the worst thing at all. I mean, it was the second worst thing, but it wasn't the worst. The worst was solitary confinement. Hmm. And um, that, of course, in, 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 in small sense, uh, is what's been happening to all of us during the pandemic. Um, and therefore, you know, one of the things I'm going to try and do within our Jewish communities is as the lockdown is eased, and we're not going to force the pace, but as it's eased, I am going to ask all our communities to put extra double effort into establishing and strengthening those bonds. Let's identify everyone in our communities who's been on their own. Let's really, really try and weave them back into the fabric of community. I think that's a very, very big act of redemption we have to do over the next few years. Yeah, I think that's... And you mentioned the here in the UK, the volunteers on the NHS and around the world, there have been these sort of surges. And I think hopefully now there is a sort of... Un, there is a demand to contribute to the community um, that we can keep momentum up on because it's it has been lacking. I think there's something huge here potentially. Um, I wish I could be sure that it was going to happen. I'm not. We have had for decades now the call to bring back national service as a way <laughs> of relating all the bits of Britain or America to one another because we're all in our little silos and our little ghettos. Um, and I can tell you for a fact that in Israel, which is a country that has national service, which is nonetheless a fissured and fragmented society, what that national service does, it really does make friends across those divides. I've mm. seen it with my nephews and my niece. Um, you know, at their weddings, that their closest friends are the people with whom uh, they served on, on, on national service. And those friends are completely different backgrounds, ethnically, religiously, everything. Um, now, we are going to have a generation of young Brits and young Americans who are going to find it very hard to get a job for the next couple of years as the economy is pretty much almost in free fall. At the same time, we're going to have enormous needs for things like, like uh, uh, testing and, tra and tracking. Uh, 300,000 people minimum to actually do that, at least in the States. Now, 
if we could only marry those two things, I can't imagine any other time before or, or afterwards where national service would make so much more economic and social sense. It would avoid the kind of real sense of frustration and even despair among a generation of young people. It would induct that generation into working for the common good. And I just think, you know, this is a, an opportunity that really should not be missed. Yeah, I, th I think it's a very interesting idea. I think also we've seen young people sort of robbed of their rights of passage as well, right? whether that's your A-level results or your opportunity to leave school in some sort of celebratory way. So, yeah, uh, there's a generation that has doesn't have that right of passage right now. And so I think replacing it with something else. Um, in the US, they've had the Peace Corps for for many decades, and that was a successful rite of passage for many people. So, yeah, that's right. What we have here, I think the nearest, I'm not sure if it is the nearest, but but it's good, is is teach first. Right. Um, and and that's really impressive. But, that, you know, that's relatively small numbers, I think. Yes, yes. Um, and another uh, idea you talk about in the, in the book is the difference between sort of contracts and covenants and there's lots of conversations at the moment about the altered social contract re do we need to rewrite the social contract should we be writing a new social covenant instead how should we think about that well it's interesting covenant was the key word that led to the free societies of the west it kind of began with the um, calvinists and so the first uh, place where it became real politically was was uh, in Geneva, uh, and then in Holland, and then in Scotland, and then around the 1620s in both England and America. Uh, England, certainly in the form of, of, of John Milton, who was steeped in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, Paradise Lost, of course, is, is based on the Hebrew Bible, but I mean, Here's a man who who did huge numbers of translations of the song. I mean, I mean, he was totally, totally biblical in his political theory. In America, it was the um, Mayflower Compact of 1620, which was a covenant, not a compact. It was the most famous early speech in American political history, John Winthrop aboard the Arbella in 1630. And so covenant was the word in the 16th and 17th century which spoke about the moral basis of a free society um, and um, which, which for the first time said you don't need to bind a society together by everyone having the same religion. And anyone who didn't have that religion wasn't a full citizen with rights. Uh, what John Locke is doing is saying, forget about religion, just talk about morality. Hmm. And um, so all of that was part of European culture, or at least Calvinist Europe. Um, and, and, and it was the transformational moment in Western political history. But it tended to disappear quite fast. In England, after the settlement of 1688, we don't hear very much. We are not, in England, a covenant society. But it stayed that in America. America remains covenantal, uh, explicitly or implicitly. In other words, 
what they basically do is tell the story, which turns out to be the story of the book of Exodus, with uh, England being the Egyptians and George III being the wicked pharaoh and the Atlantic Ocean being the Red Sea, and they escape from England to America and make a covenant. And that covenant is defined very clearly in Lyndon Baines Johnson's inaugural address of, 19, of uh, 1965. But it's there also in the Declaration of Independence, and it's there in the Gettysburg Address, which is that America is a moral enterprise dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain rights among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. G.K. Chesterton joked about this, and he called America a nation with the soul of a church. But the fact is that America succeeded pretty much until recently by this idea of covenant. And the key words of American politics are covenant words, namely, we the people. Hmm. Now, you know, and I know, Tim, that nobody in Britain ever uses the words we the people, because it's not we the people. We are Her Majesty's loyal subject. I mean, this is not a covenant thing at all. This is top-down authority. But covenant is sideways authority. It says, we come together to achieve these ends for all of us together. Now, I find that the best politics ever. And when I see America losing it, and boy, is it losing it, uh, I get very sad. And so in that, is, is uh, in the section, uh, democracy in danger, you seem to be saying that it's sort of impossible now for politics to deliver in a society where it's all about I, uh, and where people aren't bought into that covenant. So can, uh, and it's not often I get to talk about Rousseau, but there was that idea of sort of we have to force people to be free. We have to force them to engage, perhaps, in that covenant. How does how does what does that process look like? Hmm. You know, at his request, I uh, officiated at the funeral of Isaiah Berlin. <laughs> so you will know he was not impressed by Rousseau forcing people to be free. I mean, to be fair to Rousseau, he'd been dead for a while before the French Revolution. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't blame him for that. So, um, but I mean, force people to be free is the ultimate um, prelude to tyranny. And therefore, don't go anywhere near that. The fact is that, you know, to my amazement, and I think I mentioned this in the book, Ray Dalio, one of America's richest men and the uh, owner of the most successful hedge fund in the whole of America. So Ray Dalio is a pretty capitalist sort of guy. And Ray Dalio in January of 2019, in April of 2019, called the income inequality in America an existential threat to the future of the United States. What I am picking up here, there, and everywhere, I mentioned some people in the, um, um, in, 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 the, in, in the book, Raghuram Rajan, the former economic advisor of the World Bank, and uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, um, Britain's first venture capitalist. 
And what they're saying is our current situation of capitalism is not going to work. And these are capitalists. They really are. Uh, but they're saying that things have got very, very skewed. And I know many, many very successful business people who feel the same thing. So I don't think we're going to need to force people to be free. I think we're going to have to listen to some very wise people mm. who are economists or business people and who are telling us that this is unsustainable. And I think, yeah, I th and I think that's absolutely right. I think one of the other trends, though, that you, you touch on is that we're we're losing our ability to disagree. And so in that process, there will be lots of hard truths for people. And listening is not necessarily something that comes natural to people these days. Um, so like, ha have we lost that ability to disagree? Do you think we can listen to one another again? Isn't that what we're doing right now, Tim? Well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact is that in a non-listening age, uh, the prize goes to the best listeners. I mean, just, just you know, do the contrarian thing. What did um, Warren Buffett used to say? When everyone's selling, buy. When everyone is buying, then sell. I think there's a huge opportunity right now um, using the technology that we're using right now and using podcasts and all that kind of thing to establish real, genuine searching conversations. Mm. And people will listen. They really will come and listen. I've made it my business, for instance, as a religious leader, to hold big public conversations with the best atheists I can fight, <laughs> whether it's uh, Richard Dawkins here in Britain or Stephen Pinker in Harvard or the late Amos Oz in Israel, and those have been glorious conversations. I mean, really, really glorious conversations. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, I think the hunger for conversation has not diminished one little bit. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And I think that the there was a phrase which I now can't find in my notes, where actually I think you were referring to your wife, which is that we, we learn the most from the people who are most different to us. Um, and I wonder, like, so is that it, that we need to find ways, perhaps through technology, of, of getting people together who do actively disagree? Yeah, I said about my wife in, in my TED Talk, um, it's the people not like us who make us grow. And um, I have to give you an example of this, which is not my wife, because my wife is just so... Um, you know, I don't compare her to anyone, but it's it's just great because she's nice and I'm not, and she's <laughs> cheerful and I'm not, and all the good things in life, you know, that that's what she has brought into our marriage and into our family. But my goodness me, when 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 I began my doctoral research, my supervisor was um, the late Sir Bernard Williams. And Bernard Williams was an atheist, but I mean a really, really brainy atheist. <laughs> and I had just got very religious, and you know, and it was a weird, weird relationship. But I loved every minute of it because he was very respectful toward me. Mm -hmm. And in the end, 
the end was that I learned more from him than almost anyone else. Um, because not everything he said was tied to atheism. So I really, really learned a lot from him. Um, and I make it my business, really, to, um, to, um, to read the opposition. I'm yeah. sure that in the book, Morality, I quote Nietzsche more than anyone else. Now, in case you didn't know, Tim, Nietzsche was not an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> you could not be—he could not be more hostile to any, any everything I stand for. But because Nietzsche was a really, really stunningly bright human being, who told it the way it is. When you really listen to Nietzsche, you learn a great deal from him, and you don't have to agree with him at all. I, yeah, I'm afraid I'm. Uh, my brain is spoiled by Monty Python, so I can never think about Nietzsche without their song running through my head. But anyway, the soccer um, one—I can't remember that one. There's, there's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach you. Um, <laughs> but uh, and and you. So we've touched a bit on on technology. Um, imagine you had the chance to talk to an audience that might be made up of people from a large American technology company. What, what, what do you think technology, what role can technology play in this, in this change? <clears throat> Listen, I think there's a very, very important general picture which might help us think about where we are now. I believe that the most profound changes in civilization occur when there is a revolution in information technology. Other revolutions change something, but information technology revolutions change everything. The first revolution, obviously, was the invention of writing in Mesopotamia four and a half thousand years ago, and that was the birth of civilization because it meant for the first time knowledge could be accumulated right. that was larger than the scope of a single human memory. The second revolution, even more important, I believe, was the invention of the alphabet. The invention of the alphabet took these huge numbers of symbol sets of Mesopotamian cuneiform or Egyptian hieroglyphics and reduced it to 22 characters. That's the first alphabet, proto-Semitic al alphabet. Um, 38 centuries ago, the, the, the earliest form of Hebrew. And alphabet made possible for the first time the concept of universal access to knowledge. And that raised the dignity of the human person unprecedentedly. And that goes hand in hand with the birth of monotheism. The one God faces the one human being and endows both with significance. The next change, well, probably the Codex, the book. Now, the Codex was invented long before Christianity, but Christians were the first people who really used the Codex. Greeks and Jews both used scrolls. And the way a Codex works, the way a book works with pages, is completely different from the way a scroll works. And so you have, for instance, four Gospels. You would never have that if you only had a scroll. So the Codex leads to Christianity. The invention of printing leads 
to the Reformation and the birth of the modern, all the rest of it. Um, and so we go all the way through uh, national newspapers, which is the birth of nationalism, to radio, which suddenly gives enormous power to the dictator, or at least the very prominent leader, whether it's Roosevelt or Churchill, or, as it were, on the other side, Hitler. And then you suddenly get the revolution we are into at the moment, uh, whose classic example, obviously, is Google. And we thank you for the hospitality. <laughs> the truth is, it's true. Uh, which has done, as it were, the ultimate in democratizing access to information. It is, in that sense, the, the culmination of four and a half thousand years of development. All of these things are really, really important for human equality and human dignity, because I believe that knowledge and access to it is the basis of human dignity. Now, obviously, during the pandemic, these electronic media uh, have come into their own. And one of them is Google Classroom, which has allowed most of our schools to function. So what we are on the brink of here is a general understanding that we are now in a new world in which um, electronic communication will take its place with direct face-to-face -face human communication. And the question will be, what will be the spiritual transformation that will happen because all the others had spiritual consequences. And it's too early to say, but I would definitely say watch this space because this may be the most important thing that's happened in the last year. Hmm. Fascinating. One, um, one other uh, uh, thing that's happened in the last year is the, is the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I wonder if, so, in some ways, if that move from we to I has it helps us deal with some of the issues around Black Lives Matter, so long as we can move back to we again, because it allows people to introspect uh, and perhaps criticise the, the the we groups that existed in the past. Um, I don't know. How do you have you thought about that at all? <laughs> Look, it's it's a really really difficult one because you know my 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 ideals and my dreams. Uh, were formed by um, that 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 friendship, if you like, between Martin Luther King right. and uh, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, the two of whom were assassinated within three months of one another in 1968. In fact, Robert F. Kennedy, when he heard the news of Martin Luther King's assassination, gave him impromptu eulogy which is one of the finest speeches of the 20th century. He gave a much more formal speech the next day. But there was something very special there. And what happened between those two men was that this was all about, let's do this together. Martin Luther King was challenging white America to live up to the ideals of white America. And that made it so very special and moving and within the great traditions of Abraham Lincoln and so on. Um, now, that kind of approach has been supplanted, I think, by a lot of anger. 
And therefore, we have a therapeutic issue to deal with straight away, straight away. When there is real anger in the body politic, you have to lean into it. You have to listen to it and show that you are listening to it. Otherwise, all you get is violence. And violence is not going to do Black Lives Matter any good at all. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, really tough one. And for heaven's sake, Tim, you know that you can be sitting at the very heart, let's say, of 10 Downing Street, <laughs> and you're still not entirely sure what is the right thing to do. So, I mean, if we're sitting here in Britain wondering about Black Lives Matter in America, I mean, I think we have to have the humility to be able to say, I really do not understand the depths of this. And I, I it would be flip of me to offer any kind of practical solution. Right. And, uh, which I think takes us back to that idea of the ability to listen, which many people many people have lost i'm afraid we're, we're before i run out of time it would be remiss and um to talk about i'd love to hear your views on rising anti-semitism around the world because i do it is obviously a present issue uh not just in the uk but in, in politics around the world and what and it, and it must connect with much of what you're talking about as well um what what do we do anti-semitism in this case is a dependent variable, not an independent variable. The anti-Semitism floating around right now has got nothing to do with Jews. It's got to do with political turbulence. And when there is political turbulence, um, anti-Semitism follows as night follows day. Uh, when people feel a sense of loss, they've lost economically, they may have lost their jobs. They're not sure where the world is going. They're not sure whether politicians are listening to them. And when that happens, um, any group can ask one of two questions. It's an either or. You can't ask both. Any group that feels a sense of loss can either say, what did we do wrong? Or it can say, who did this to us? And if it asks the second question, it's going to find somebody to blame. And the candidate of choice for the last thousand years has been the Jews. So that's why it's happening. So it's about ask, 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 making sure that people can ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, it 100%. Is. I mean, you know, when... Masses of people are into conspiracy theories. Um, you know we're in trouble. Yes. So um, I think we, we, we're we starting to have some questions coming in, so I better, uh, I'll keep an eye out for those. Um, I think uh, one, you, you, earlier on you talked about the sort of, that we can tackle this in the way that we can tackle climate change by individually altruistic uh, changes, what would your advice be for an individual on how to live a more moral life? <laughs> Volunteer. You know, one of the things I did in the course of research for the book is discover, to my amazement, the sheer health benefits of volunteering. Right. Extraordinary. I mean, you feel better psychologically. 
You actually become better physically. Your immune system is strengthened. It's called the helper's high, and it's a remarkable thing. And, you know, if, if, if more and more people do volunteer, uh, more and more people do join charities, do join communities that are reaching out to the isolated and so on, um, they're going to be doing good for everyone. The people they are helping, uh, the society as a whole, and themselves. So um, that's why and how. Great. Well, simple. Brilliant. Well, I think we have some questions ready to come, and they will pop up on the screen. Here we go. Um, so, yeah, what role do you think social media is playing in dividing people along moral lines? Does it amplify people's compulsion to pick sides rather than being open to all arguments? Uh, I don't want to be mean to social media. Uh, they're a disaster as far as that is concerned. Um, we have something called the confirmation bias. We believe the views that agree with us. And uh, the social media make this possible. What used to happen, what, for instance, the BBC does, is called broadcasting. It means that you communicate with lots and lots of people who are very different from one another. What social media do is narrow casting. It's communicating with people who, by and large, have the same views as you. And Cass Sunstein of Harvard has done a lot of research on this, that if you associate uh, electronically or personally with people whose views are the same, then you and they will become more extreme. So just because of the phenomenon of narrow casting, um, the social media are um, increasing divisiveness in society. So, so again, perhaps it comes down to asking the right questions, seeking out the people that, that you disagree with to hear what hear their views. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. Um, you know, um, yeah, always a rule in life that I've observed ever since I wrote my first book was always read the opposition. <laughs> and I commend that. I think that's very good advice. Um, brilliant. Let's see the next question. Uh, so from here, show how much is increased competition due to decreased cooperation versus the decline of previously dominant ethnic, economic, religious power centers? Doesn't democratization always involve power struggle? Yeah, democratization always involves power struggle. The beautiful, beautiful thing about the liberal democratic state is that it allows power struggles to take place in non-violent ways. And likewise, the market economy, which is about the pursuit of wealth, again, the market economy, although it's full of selfishness, as it were, is also unparalleled in its capacity to encourage creativity. Without uh, the market economy, without competition, we wouldn't have Google, we wouldn't have uh, Microsoft, we wouldn't have Apple, we wouldn't have Amazon, you know. So these two things are, are, are very competitive and they're very creative. Um, what I'm talking about is not democratization. 
I'm talking about the pre-political virtues, the things that have to happen in order for democratization to proceed in a fair, just, and gracious way. And that is basically the moral infrastructure, the moral climate, if you like. Uh, democracy always will be competitive and conflictual, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that's right. I heard uh, here in the UK, Lord O'Shaughnessy on um, Radio 4 a few weeks ago talking about democracy and just, it's all right to disagree with one another so long as you're event you can eventually agree that you're going to reach a goal. So that competition is okay because it forms the beautiful sculpture of the better policy or the better and whatever it is that, that is the end goal process. Right. Um, is there another question? There we go, from Lorna. Do you think more needs to be done within education systems to emphasize how much difference should be celebrated and different perspectives can help shape your own values and ideas? 100%. I can't imagine education functioning uh, without that, actually. Um, can I just tell you something that's sort of... Um, very Jewish, but never mind. <laughs> in in you know in in sixty nine, I graduated for, from from Cambridge, and we had in Cambridge this thing, you know, the university library, where you know if you coughed, you were kind of sent into exile in Siberia. You know, it was the quietest thing you could imagine. Uh, after graduating, I went for a few months to study in a rabbinical seminary in Israel. And you could hear the noise of the study hall from, you know, 400 yards. Everyone was standing up and arguing with one another because the Mishnah and the Talmud, the classic Jewish text. I once said Judaism is the only culture I know, all of whose canonical texts are anthologies of arguments. So in Judaism, to think is to argue, and that's how you educate somebody. That's how actually we educate somebody. We get them to replay some of the great arguments of 2,000 years ago, and each student has to take a certain position among the people who actually did argue 2,000 years ago, and then they have to do the whole thing again, but taking a different position. So they're actually learning the skill of what it is to see something from a perspective and argue from that perspective, and at the same time to see things from a different perspective and argue from that different perspective. That contains an enormous amount of intellectual flexibility, and actually I think that flexibility is what we need right now because the world is full of clamour of very sharply held and very different beliefs. And I think it becomes terribly important to be able to enter into each of those serially. And your ability to enter into different positions does not, in my view, compromise your ability to come to an independent position as to who is right and who is wrong. But everyone is a voice in the conversation. Great. Yes. Um, brilliant. Thank you. The, uh, I think we have another question from, from Anne. So how can we change the approach of people in our communities, particularly political leaders who lead from I and not we? 
thinking of how you recently described politics as what should we do? Hmm. What should we do? That is an incredibly good question there. <laughs> because um, politics is in great danger of becoming a personality cult. And I can't think of anything more unattractive. It's not what democracy is about. Democracy is not about following the charismatic leader. It's about listening to the will of the people. So I think somehow or other, we have to bring back loudly and clearly the concept of political leadership as service. The leader serves the people. The people do not serve the leader. And you will know, Tim, as well as I, that it wasn't that long ago when people did indeed think that way. And you and I, I think, probably have been very moved by the fact that we have known people at the very top of the uh, political ladder who, at the end of the day, knew full well that they were only servants of the people. Right and that they were there to serve some interest far larger than their own. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, um, and, a, and a great answer to that question. Um, we have a question from Sam. Judaism relies on communal family experiences, and Google thrives on teamwork and a spirit of googliness. What advice would you give to Google and your community to thrive in this era of lockdown? <laughs> I'm sure you noticed this, Tim, but the sheer flourishing of creativity, which appeared almost as soon as lockdown begin, began. There were families recording YouTube videos, lip-syncing to this and acting out that and doing funny sketches. And, you know, I don't have enough time to uh, watch all this stuff, so I really can't tell you what happened. But uh, it was great stuff. I mean, really, really great stuff. And um, all I can say is Britain's got talent. <laughs> so, you know, uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, within the Jewish community, virtually every community I know has created all sorts of virtual engagements, you know, synagogue magazines through Zoom. It's gone around interviewing people and, and profiling people and, and really um, allowing people to learn a little bit about the people who've been sitting opposite in them in the synagogue for 25 years, but they never knew who they were, you know, and suddenly wow, there's the synagogue magazine. Now I know who they are. Um, there have been creative use of Zoom for, for services of, of various kinds. Stunningly creative use of Zoom for educational purposes, adult education. Uh, I have been teaching audiences right around the world, um, pretty much fairly nonstop since the beginning of lockdown. So um, this has become one of the great periods of, 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 of creativity, and I've no doubt that a lot of it is going to last. That said, um, if you need X, you need 10 people to constitute a quorum for Jewish prayer, 
10 people gathered together by Zoom do not constitute a quorum in Jewish law. Jewish law says you've got to actually be there in person, physically, um, for it to count. So we have, while being creative on, on, these, um, on these electronic media, we have been keeping, as far as we could, uh, real synagogue services going. Obviously, much, mu much limited, but, but keeping them going. Um, and that second fact uh, should remind us that electronic communication is never a real substitute for the real thing when it comes to personal psychology, the touch of two selves. So, but I, I, I do think people have been very, very creative during this period. And what of that is going to last, I don't know, but quite a lot of it is. Brilliant. Rabbi Sachs, thank you so much uh, for spending time with me today and for answering these questions. Uh, I can highly recommend this book, Morality. It was a Sunday Times bestseller here in the UK and published in uh, the US last week on the 1st of September. So please do go out and get your hands on a copy and uh, uh, read what is such an incisive analysis of the world today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more thought-provoking content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.